Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Early morning on September 28, 1941, Gulf star Marion Miley and her mother were fatally shot as three robbers entered their Lexington Country Club apartment. Last year, in January of 2019, we covered the murder of Marion Miley in one of our earlier episodes of this podcast. Recently, however, author Beverly Bell released her book, The Murder of Marion Miley, where she reveals details that have never been discussed before about the life of the local golfing legend as well as her brutal murder and the men that were convicted and executed for her murder. Beverly Bell is an award-winning writer, broadcaster, and local historian. She lives in Lexington, Kentucky with her husband. Hi, Beverly. Hi. Thank you for joining us today. I wanted to start this podcast by asking you a little bit about your own writing. So your trade in writing is in journalism broadcasting. How did you come across the story of Marion Miley and what compelled you to delve into the subject so deeply? It was actually a story told to me about Marion years ago. I had just started doing some very small pieces for local magazines, just sort of dipping my toe in in that uh, type of writing. And my late father-in-law one day told me this story about this famous golfer who had lived in Kentucky and who was murdered when she was 27. I had taken up the game of golf maybe a few years earlier. I didn't come into the game until my 20s. And so he told me this story. He had been a teenager when she had been killed and it was very firm in his mind what had happened. He he had obviously never uh, forgotten the story. Was he playing golf at the time or? No, he was not a golfer at all. I think it was just because Marion was so famous and so known in certainly in, in Lexington and in the state, but, but well beyond and it had just stayed with him. And then once I heard the story, it, it stayed with me as well. I just started to do some basic research. I was doing other things at the same time and just started pulling pieces together. This was, this was a very long journey for me. I, uh, it, yeah, I would work on it a bit. I ended up doing a, a small magazine piece about her. And yeah, you wrote an article for her in which, which magazine, like a golfing uh, magazine. Yeah, it was, this is terrible. Women's sports and fitness, I think is what the magazine was called. And I I remember the, the editors has sent me a a note after I had sent him the story and and he was, and he, and he put in all caps, love it. And and I just (laughs) remember that and, and it was, Honestly, that reaction isn't that unusual. It seems like whenever people hear this story, their reaction is, well, first of all, I've never heard of this before. And, and secondly, tell me more. What, what, what are the details? 
and she did leave a lead a very compelling life. It's, it was short life, but she she accomplished so much. Can you tell us a little bit about her life? Sure. Yes. Well, you know, first of all, as as we know, she she was an elite uh, American golfer who most people have never heard of. I think that's the the descriptive phrase that that fits the best. She uh, took up the game when she was about 12 years old, and she was taught the game by her father, who was a golf pro. Fred Miley. Mm -hmm. Marion was an only child, the only child of Fred and Elsie Miley. And as you can, you know, see many times play out, only children are typically very focused on by their parents. They are exposed to a lot of, of different activities to kind of see what you know clicks with them and, and what they enjoy. Golf was obviously a, a passion for Fred. And I think it probably didn't take him very long to recognize that Marion had some significant talent. Still, it, it, the fact that she didn't take up the game until she was 12 kind of says something about, we're not forcing this game on you. We're, we're letting it come to you. But a, a little more of her background, she was, she was born in Philadelphia. She lived a while in Boston. Since her father was a golf pro, he would take different jobs that, that typically happened. Uh, golf, golf pros would move around within country clubs. And we don't know the exact year, but they ended up down in Florida. She was, you know, I'm guessing, but probably around eight or nine ended up living in Florida. They spent a considerable amount of time there. Yeah, they did. Actually, they were spending time before a permanent move because it was very usual for a golf pro. He might have and I say he, because all the golf pros at that time uh, were, were men, he would stay with a club maybe up north and when the, when the weather was good. And then when it moved into winter, a lot of pros would go down and work at clubs in Florida. They would give lessons. So, so that was kind of a typical thing. Marion probably had very early experience with the state of Florida, even when she was a little girl. But yeah, she spent all of her school years in, in Florida. That's where she graduated from high school when she was 16 from high school in, in Fort Pierce, Florida. But then the depression comes along and everybody's impacted by it. You start to see that the state of Florida hit a little earlier because so much of their economy was tied in with real estate. Uh, Fred ends up at the Lexington Country Club in 1930 as the golf pro. So the family the family moves to Lexington and Marion would be there from 16 until her death at the age of 27. And they lived on that property? Not originally. I think they had a place on Kentucky Avenue first, and then they moved into an apartment on the second floor of the Lexington Country Club, which probably was a really good deal. You know, yeah, they had a place to live and... Fred was the golf pro. Marion's mother, Elsie, would eventually become what they called the office manager at the club. And so, yeah, it was, it was a nice arrangement. And then in 1937, Fred took what I would consider probably a better paying job at a private club up in Cincinnati. And Marion and her mother continued to live in the apartment. Her mother still as the office manager. And Fred 
actually lived in a boarding house in, in Cincinnati, uh, probably took a, a room there to keep expenses down and then would return home every couple of weeks. Yeah, Marion won her first tournament, the, the state amateur tournament for women in 1931, when she was 17. That was her first major win. And she also was attending what is now Florida State University. And so those first couple of years, she was more focused on uh, attending school. Uh, so she didn't play in a lot of tournaments. It, it wasn't until she decided to leave Florida State and focus on golf full time was when she really kind of came into her own. And that's when she started playing in all these amateur tournaments. There was no professional golf circuit for women as we know it today. Everything was about the amateur tour. Most of these uh, tournaments tended to be in the South where the weather was better. (laughs) But, you know, she she went on. She she played all over the country eventually. And you delved quite a bit into her life in your book, The Murder of Marion Miley. And what compelled me about your book is that you tell it from the perspective of so many people that surrounded Marion, both in her life and in her death, her tragic death, the people she came into contact with at the Lexington Country Club, her golfing games, the tournaments, her father, her friends, as well as the men that committed the murder. You know, there's a lot of conversations that happen between those characters Did you do that intentionally to kind of bring the reader closer to her and what happened to her on that fateful day where she was murdered? I did. I wanted to tell her story from like 360 degrees. And what I mean is, you know, you don't get as full a vision of a person without asking several people because we show different parts of our personality to different people. And I just imagined that Marion is this national figure. And I also think of her as a daughter and I think of her as a friend. And so I really wanted to get that comprehensive look. So you're right. The book is told mainly from three perspectives, three points of view, her father, and her best friend, and then one of the men who committed the crime. And the, the reason, particularly for the, with the man who committed the crime, the reason Tom Clooney, he was a Kentuckian from Anderson County, I was able to really find some materials that gave me more than a passing glimpse into what... And I have to admit, this, there's some really... I mean, surprising elements in your book that I was really fascinated with about just like the tidbits of information you're able to find in your research. You gain so much insight. Yeah. And one of the privileges that uh, that I had, and I do consider that a privilege in my research, was when Tom Penny was convicted for this crime and was awaiting execution, he was at the state penitentiary in Eddyville. And He was a prolific letter writer, (laughs) and I was able to read the letters that he wrote from Eddyville to his mother, and there were, actually, there were a couple of other letters to to other people, but it it, it it was more than 70 letters he wrote, and 
what you see from the very beginning is his great remorse in his part in this crime. I don't know how much we're, we're giving away in this podcast, um, but it, it, it is interesting to understand who really perpetrated this and yeah, the person behind the idea Yeah, for the, who was responsible for these murders. Yeah. And the person who was behind the original plan, it all plays a part, but it just became pretty clear to me that while I'm not taking away any of his responsibility and guilt in, in this, this crime, it became very clear to me that he regretted it Almost, I mean, immediately. And I saw him as a person who really maybe was a bit manipulated. And, you know, one of the things that I was told uh, about Tom Penny was that he always saw himself. He had this kind of puffed up image of himself as this this great criminal. You know, there were, you know, Babyface Nelson and there was, you know, all these really criminals that had great notoriety at a time because it was the the Great Depression and, and people were looking for, for heroes in very odd places. That he had this puffed up image of himself, but it just it just didn't resonate on any level. <laughs> it was maybe him trying to be something important or Yeah. So those yeah, those those letters, uh, among other things. Yeah. And you were, you said you were able to interview a relative of Marion's as well. Uh, yes. Well, e- extended, I suppose, uh, you know, she was an only child and she and her mother, we should say, were, were both uh, killed as a result of this crime. Yeah. Elsie. Her mother, yeah. Her mother did live for a few days afterwards. Marion was, was killed instantly. Well, this of course just left Fred by himself and he ended up remarrying a couple of years later. And while I was never able to interview the second wife, she she died before I found her, I did find the second wife's sister. And I was actually working on another writing assignment. I had to go down to Florida to work on another writing assignment. And I made a side trip to go meet with her in person. And that was fascinating, you know, just telling me things how she really gave me a sense of Fred's state of mind and how, how understandably, how devastated he was. Um, After this, um, she told me that he, you know, he became an alcoholic and, you know, it just really puts flesh on the bones. You, of course, you read all these old newspaper, gray newspaper articles, and you see faded photographs and, and the people become, they just don't seem real, right? Uh, no, they seem one dimensional. There's no right? feeling. There's nothing to them. And I was, I was actually discussing this with one of my colleagues, like when you're reading newspaper articles about these, you know, local uh, crimes, you don't see the, the true story behind these people. And that's what I liked about your book. It validated the, whatever these people were going through. Right, um, right. At the time. Yeah. 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 So that, you know, you just hear a couple of stories like that and uh, you know, hearing about how, you know, Fred became an alcoholic. Well, yeah, that kind of makes sense. He lost his only child and then he lost his wife a couple of days later. And you can imagine that there must have just been all consuming guilt. Of course. Yeah. If I had been here, would it yeah. be different or would I have been, you know, another victim as well. So 
Yeah, that I thought the three perspectives, the, the, the three main points of view that I have telling the story just really told her, you know, because the, the one thing I just wanted to say about the best friend, you know, when, when um, a young girl is, is growing up, you know, she was a teenager when she first came to, uh, to Lexington, you know, you're going to tell your friends different things than you're going to tell your parents. <laughs> you're yeah. Gonna, yeah. You're, You've you're, got your life with your friends and your life with your parents. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Even in the thirties, that was true. And then of course, the important role that Frances Laval was, was her friend's name that she, that she played with those those elusive scrapbooks of Marion. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was pretty important. Marion put together the scrapbooks just nine months before her death, kind of really just laying out her career. And, and those those scrapbooks became so important to me in terms of, of just seeing her accomplishments and her defeats. They weren't all and this is fascinating, the way you found these scrap, scrapbooks. Like, <laughs> yeah, tell that, our reader, tell yeah, our listeners yeah, yeah, that, how um, you found these. So again, this was years ago, and, and I was just asking questions around Lexington. This was not a very deliberate process, I have to tell you, in the beginning. I, I was really just trying to put some pieces together. And I don't even know how exactly it happened, but I became aware of a woman who lived here in Lexington who had some materials that had belonged to Marion and she invited me over to her house and the story as she told it to me that she had come in possession of this, of this home and had found some um, scrapbooks in her basement that had just been sort of pushed aside and she didn't really know what they were about, but or why they were there, but yes, they were about Mary and Miley. And so, of course, I was intrigued, came down, went into the basement, and sure enough, you know, that's what she had. She also had a watch that had belonged to Marion, and she had something very unusual. She had a little, like, slot machine, uh, you know, like a, a, a smaller, like a desk size that that you can you you've seen them before. They're um, you know they were quite popular, and so I start looking through them. I, I figure it out. Okay, obviously these were put together. I don't know who. We don't know how they were put <laughs> together, but they, you know. And she said, "I'm not sure what to do with them." And I said, "Well, they they should be protected." And you know, the Lexington Country Club, maybe you should contact, but you should definitely keep these safe. These are important. And actually, uh, Mary, and I, I don't think I've mentioned this to you before. It was just shortly after that, that I, I moved away from Lexington. So I didn't really know what had happened. I, I knew that, you know, I had tried to convey this to her. And then she ended up coming in touch with another person who was connected to the to the country club. And then, of course, years later, uh, when, when I'm really working on this in earnest, I see the scrapbooks out of the Lexington Country Club. And I think, oh. okay, well, now we know that they found their way. And so, in fact, when I went out to the country club to to look at those things again. I've been out there several times. And I said, do you ever remember seeing a, a small slot machine? I asked that question and they were like, no, 
No. And so that, of course, I'm curious what happened. Marion loved to gamble. She, she did. She talks in her diary. I guess that's the Florida life. Yeah. (laughs) Going to the dog races. You're absolutely right. I love it. I love when she's talking about, oh, I had a good day. I won this. Oh, not a good day. Really, uh, you know, really blew it today. And these weren't huge amounts of money, but it, it became very clear to me that she liked to gamble. So. Well, she did lead a, such a, an important and um, compelling life that unfortunately came to a tragic end by her murder by these three men. And we, of course, have to discuss the murder itself. Right. This was a, a robbery attempt. Uh, the country club held dances every Saturday night. And I don't know, they would charge a dollar or something and members would come and stay the evening. And this was a normal thing at the, at the country club. There, there was a, a person with inside knowledge of the country club and he got in his mind that thousands of dollars were brought in during these dances, which of course is kind of ridiculous when you just look at the number of people who were attending uh, the dance on a regular Saturday night. But anyway, and a plan was concocted to rob the country club. Marion's mother, I'd mentioned, was the office manager, and she would hold on to the receipts of the dance, I guess until Monday, when the money would be deposited in the bank. So she and Marion are living upstairs in the apartment still, 1937, and beginning in, in 1937 alone, is what I mean, uh, when, when Fred took the other job. And so about two o'clock in the morning, these these three men meet, make their plan to uh, break in. The first part of it was to cut the electricity, and they had planned to cut telephone wires and you know proceed in. The thing that I have to say, though, that this was one of the one of the most poorly executed crimes. <laughs> when you work on a story for this long, you you really start breaking it down to understand not only what happened, but why it happened. Yeah. The and, motivation. And, yeah. Well, and just the results, you know, how did this, this tragic end of, you know, this national young, <laughs> pretty talented golfer, you know, murdered at 27 and her mother shot. Uh, how did this, how did this happen? And I think, you know, what I've concluded is there was just such a hubris to how this, this crime was, was carried out. The, the planning was poor. The execution was certainly poor. Uh, warning signs were ignored. But, you know, I guess it just speaks to the time in terms of maybe the desperation for money um, and how money is a motivator. So two men, two of the three actually broke in to the club. The, uh, the one was outside. It actually took them two attempts while inside the club, they had no familiarity with it. They didn't know where the apartment was or how to access it because they hadn't been in that portion of the club before. They got scared off once. Just leave some mystery there. Ended up running uh, out of the club and, and then they ended up returning uh, to try again. And on that second attempt, one of the men brought guns. First time they tried to break in, 
they did not have any guns. But the second time they did. And the way it is told in the court testimony about what happened as soon as these men were able to get through the apartment door on the second floor, that it was just utter chaos, that it was, as, as Tom Penny described it, you know, all hell broke loose. And, you know, the, the belief is that they had no idea that Elsie Miley would not be alone. They had no knowledge that there was this great young athlete also living up in that apartment with her mother. Uh, again, this, this shows the, again, the hubris, the lack of planning. It just, it just, you know, on a totally technical aspect of this, it seems like to me that if you, you know, had serious intentions to commit a crime, you know, you would think it through. Um, it does not feel that way to me in, in all that I've read about it. Marion fought back immediately as soon as she heard that door being broken down. And so she ended up being uh, shot twice and once point blank range in, into her head. It, it doesn't feel accidental. It doesn't, it just feels very brutal um, the way that it was done. And if you track down any of the pictures uh, from the crime scene. It, it definitely was brutal. Marion's mother was also shot three times, left for dead. And two men escaped with the money that they found. And I think they believed that both women were dead. As it turns out, Marion's mother was not. And, and she was able to describe the men. Yeah, she was able to crawl. First of all, she had to, you know, three, shot three times, crawled out the entrance of the country club over, they describe it over gravel and dirt to get to the other side of the road where she could get help at a, it was actually a sanitarium. It's a private residence now. And, and she was able to, to give a description before, you know, sinking into unconsciousness and then you know, eventually she would die uh, two, two, three days later. They just couldn't, it, there was just too much damage. They couldn't save her. And there's a national manhunt for these, these two. And it, it was described as just the most devastating crime that had happened to Lexington, um, yeah, to the state up to that, um, up to that yeah. point. There was great shame in the city, I think, when it happened. I will tell you that even when I started the research, you know, several decades later, there was a resistance on some for some folks to talk about it. You could tell that there was still shame involved with, with that crime. And, you know, as, as what happens, you know, in, in so many crimes, they just happen. Yeah. They just, you know, it's they just it's, do. Yeah. They they just do. You know, people are taken advantage of. They're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Things just happen, and it's not necessarily anyone's fault. And I and I felt that way from the very beginning when I first became familiar with the story. This was desperation and greed, and and the the results was was death, which unfortunately has happened many times <laughs> in other crimes. You know, it just... Yeah. And the investigation, did it take long? Were they able to find these perpetrators quickly? Relatively quickly. 
you can definitely say that justice was swift in this in this situation. It was about 10 days when Tom Penny was arrested in Texas. That is a whole story unto itself in terms of bling and what the plan was. Yeah, that's another fascinating part of the book. A whole other side of it. Just incredible. Yeah, and and then the so-called inside man who who put the whole thing together and then the the, the third person and the, the person I feel most responsible for the for the death of these women was a felon. And Bob Anderson was was from Louisville and he and Tom Penny had met each other while serving time together. But he was definitely the the person uh, calling the shots with the, with this crime and so Tom Penny is arrested first and then then Bob Anderson and then the uh, the third person uh, the the inside man he he was arrested last, and that again is a, a separate story that is that is so very very sad. This inside man was acted very friendly with Mrs. Miley, took advantage totally, took advantage of a friendship, and and so yes, so they they were arrested. Uh, the first the first trial was held. They they were tried separately. Uh, the day after the attack at Pearl Harbor, which would have been December 8th. And it was 10 days and all three men were convicted and sentenced to die. There were numerous appeals that, that went on for over a year, but then all three were executed in the electric chair in February of 1943. So it, it's a quick, you know, it, it was a quick process, their original conviction and, and then um, the executions. But certainly now, you know, we can see those, those appeals going on for many, many years. That did not happen. And I do think that speaks to just the horror over this, this crime and how people wanted someone punished for it. Because she was so famous. She was so famous, you know, when her death occurred, you know, it was, the story was on the front page, top of the fold of the New York Times. It was reported all over the world, Great Britain, France, Australia, Mexico, beyond. It, it was, it was reported all over the world. And that I think just speaks to, you know, how much she was in the, you know, public eye and, you know, her notoriety, her celebrity. Uh, in those in those years between you know 16 when she first comes to to Kentucky and then uh, she dies in 1941 yeah unfortunately yeah she, it was very tragic her your book captures I think the spirit of her life and you do that so well I think one of the things that people really can't appreciate is her level of celebrity I think that um, you know when I was <laughs> When I was researching the book and I would come across these things, these surprising things that spoke to that celebrity, I, I started referring to them as her Forrest Gump moments uh, in my own brain because, you know, Forrest Gump, of course, the movie with Tom Hanks, and he's this 
he's this guy who has all these interactions with famous people and he's part of, you know, uh, worldwide events. And of course, you know, that's all fiction, but in, you know, Marion's life, you know, she's taught, she writes in her diary about having dinner with, you know, Bob at the home of Bob Hope and his, you know, his wife, Dolores, and, you know, she's playing golf with Bing Crosby and she, you know, meets the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, of course, who was the, uh, the king who abdicated on uh, his wife. Simpson and she meets Clark Gable and she plays golf with our former governor, uh, Happy Chandler. And, but there were, and there were business people and all these contacts that she was having. And it's just, and you think in your head, okay, she was like, you know, 25. <laughs> and you have to think about the time too, like a woman golfer to be this famous, you know, she, she, you know, made a name for herself at the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, and of course it was her extraordinary talent that, that provided these, these opportunities, you know, a a really important thing to remember is, you know, we hear daughter of a golf pro and we might have something, Oh, you know, that she was privileged or whatever. Golf pros were not thought of. They were considered working class. They were a person that was hired by the golf club to, you know, give lessons and weigh in on tournaments and, you know, do, do the different things that the pros uh, did at that time. She was not, this would not have been considered a, a privileged class. It was her extraordinary golf that just propelled her into a different world. And I always say, you know, yeah, this story took place in the, in the 1930s, but without any hint of the Great Depression, because she, you know, this isn't, you know, it isn't that story of poverty. It is, uh, or of job loss, uh, you know, economic struggles. Her golf gave her just a perfect entree into into a, a different world with with different people, and she enjoyed it, you know. And she was really good at it. She was very she her she managed the press very well. She was very smart. She was very graceful in defeat. You know, it, it, it's really quite astounding when you see how she managed the media, which at that time was basically newspapers and some radio. But whatever, she she learned to do that very well. So, you know, she had this combination of skills that, that really served her well. And it, it's just really sort of regretful to think about, you know, what what could have been, what, what life then because she was already working for Standard Oil at the time of her death, which was very, very unusual, uh, an oil company to hire. It was basically a public relations capacity. But what it allowed her to do was she was actually in, they called it inspecting service stations. She would go, she would meet with the, the person, the staff who was operating that service station. And then while she was there, she would be introduced to, you know, business leaders or maybe some politicians or whatever. She did a lot of what I would call goodwill golf and, uh, you know, playing and, you know, just establishing relationships. She, She did an unbelievable amount of travel for this job. And she was very good at networking. <laughs> it looks like yeah. very, very good. And she was so happy a couple, a couple months before her death that she, she got a raise and she was happy about it. You could just tell she was proud. She was, 
you know, you think about it, uh, you know, it, it was an unusual thing for a woman at that time. And, and she had, a, uh, you know, an awful lot of independence and uh, it must have been really heady stuff, you know. And a lot of times her murder is described as the forgotten murder because it was so close to the breakout of World War II. And yeah, it was just nine weeks or so before the attack on Pearl Harbor, which, of course, brought the United States into World War II. And then you know, understandably, everything became about the war effort. Yes, it was definitely forgotten. And then when we emerged from World War II in 1945, people just wanted to look ahead. They, they didn't want to look back. So she was really caught by that time warp that just allowed the story to be forgotten. Well, your book definitely brings it out to the forefront and shares a little bit of uh, Lexington history with our listeners and um, readers. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and giving us your time, Beverly. We really enjoyed it. Again, the book is The Murder of Marion Miley by Beverly Bell, published by South Limestone. I believe they can purchase it at any local bookstore. Yeah, Joseph Beth has it, of course, uh, online. Thank you so much again for joining us, Beverly. Enjoy. Take care. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm. Or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at lexpublib.org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.